Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulp.net, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, since 1996, online at thepulp.net. This Pulp Event Podcast features a panel discussion about the Pulp magazine, Famous Fantastic Mysteries. Participating are Ed Hulls, editor of Blood and Thunder magazine, and Pulp scholar Nathan Madison. The talk was recorded on August 7th, 2014, at Pulp Fest 2014 in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Ed Hulse. I'm the editor and publisher of Blood and Thunder magazine, which you can see upstairs. My partner for this presentation tonight is Nathan Madison, who, in addition to being a scholar and a pulp fan with a special interest in the pulps of Frank A. Muncie, one of which we're discussing tonight, is also the author of Anti- foreign imagery in American pulps and comics. Did I get that right? Which is available from Scarecrow Press? Uh, McFarlane. McFarlane, McFarlane, pardon me. Um, It it is a wonderful book, by the way. We excerpted some of it in Blood and Thunder last issue, and it is extremely well-researched, well-written. Nathan is a guy who knows his stuff, and even more importantly for a crowd like ours, he still retains his enthusiasm for it, and I believe it's safe to say that he's learning new stuff all the time as he... comes to shows like this. So uh, our overarching theme this year for the convention is uh, the Diamond Jubilee, the 75th anniversary of science fiction's golden age, which began in the pulp magazines. Uh, I would say for those of us who are baby boomers, we've grown up with science fiction readily available in books, hardcover books, in mass market paperbacks. Twas not always thus. Uh, For a long time, science fiction was only available in pulp magazines. And uh, for a long time, it was only taken seriously by the readers of those pulp magazines. And uh, many of whom, by the way, uh, began as fans and readers and grew up to become writers, editors, artists, and perpetuate the traditions that they were picking up from the earliest science fiction magazines like uh, those published by Hugo Gernsback. But we turn today to Frank A. Muncie, who I'm sure any of you who are familiar with Pulps at all know as the uh, founder of the Argosy, originally the Golden Argosy, which was one of the best-selling Pulps in the early years of the 20th century. He became truly one of the giants of the field. Um, Nathan has done considerable research on his life, and he's going to fill us in with some details. Um, But we jump ahead to the year 1939, when the people who were then running the Muncie Company, at that time it was a guy named William T. Dewart, he was the head honcho. They were uh, publishing magazines under uh, what they called the Red Star imprint. And they were taking advantage of what was then a boom in science fiction. Now, why did this happen in 1939? I'm not sure anybody knows specifically. There had been a lot of activity in the last couple of years. Astounding Stories, the leading magazine in the field, had taken a quantum leap ahead in quality when um, John W. Campbell started editing it in late 1937 and early 1938. He introduced a lot of the writers who we now acknowledge as some of the the field's greatest. Um, Other magazines started. Other companies wanted to get involved. So, as we'll discuss a little more in one of the presentations tomorrow, it really was a boom year. Now, the Muncie Company, the Red Star Company, had a rich tradition in science fiction. 
going back to the early years of the Argosy and All Story Weekly, edited at various times by Bob Davis and Thomas Metcalf and others. And um, in those days, they called science fiction the scientific romance. And of course, they weren't using romance in our popular connotation of a love story. They were using it in its, in its wider meaning of a, of a, um, a fanciful story uh, uh, set on a grand scale. And Edgar Rice Burroughs, of course, was the king of the early scientific romance. He broke into writing in 1912 in All Story Weekly with Under the Moons of Mars, which was later retitled A Princess of Mars for hardcover publication. Shortly after that, he wrote Tarzan of the Apes, which, while not science fiction, certainly had a lot of the fantastic elements that we associate with science fiction, especially later entries in that series. But Burroughs was by far I mean, he was he was uh, reasonably prolific, and he seemed to be well-liked, but he was not hardly the only guy writing scientific romances. There was also Abe Merritt, A. Merritt, according to his byline, who worked on the uh, Hearst newspaper Sunday supplement called the American Weekly, and Merritt wrote his own brand. Beginning in 1917, he wrote his own brand of science fiction and fantastic fiction. And there were other authors that followed, some of whom Nathan will talk about. But the, uh, the 1939 breakthrough was somebody at Red Star, perhaps William Dewart himself, saying, look, we've got all these old stories from our magazines dating back to 1912 and before. I mean, people like William Wallace Cook had been writing science fiction in Argosy even at the turn of the century. We have all these people. Let's bring out a magazine, since science fiction is hot now, let's bring out a magazine where we can reprint some of these old stories. Because uh, even in the late 30s, there were people who were avidly reading Muncie magazines like Argosy and saying, you know, I really would wish you'd reprint Merritt's Ship of Ishtar again. I really like to see that, and it's been so many years, it's been 15 years since it was in print, blah, blah, blah. And since science fiction stories from the pulps at that time were very rarely collected in book form, uh, a reprint magazine was considered the way to go. So the editor was a woman named Mary Nadinger, who I think was a very good editor. Uh, she eventually found that she had to trim a lot of the stories, some of which were book-length novels and lengthy serials in their original publications. She would have to trim many of them to get them into an issue of Famous Fantastic Mysteries. Originally, they serialized some of the novels, but they found it was better for the sales of the magazine to have a complete novel in an issue. And they ran many of the, uh, what you would call classic early scientific romances, complete in one issue. But in doing so, she would often trim something that was, say, 85 or 90,000 words down to 60,000 words, so she can get it in one uh, issue of the magazine. For that reason, a lot of serious science fiction fans uh, and historians look down on both Famous Fantastic Mysteries and Mary Nadinger. They kind of poo-poo this. Well, she butchered the stories. In the first place, a lot of the stories could have used trimming to begin with. So I personally think she did a pretty good job on most of them. Every once in a while, you can read one of these stories and, and see that there was more there. You can see a little choppiness or gaps in continuity. But for the most part, the stories in Famous Fantastic Mysteries were, I think, extremely well edited. The magazine also had the advantage of some terrific interior artists, one of them being Frank R. Paul, who, of course, goes back to the original Gernsback 
science fiction magazine Amazing Stories. But a more important contribution was made by Virgil Finlay, who fans of fantastic fiction and the pulps already knew from his great work in Weird Tales, uh, not only as a cover artist, but more importantly for his very intricate black and white illustrations uh, inside the magazine. Finlay did a lot of work for Famous Fantastic Mysteries, and I think uh, his work is one of, the, one of the things that makes these magazines particularly collectible. Now, for those of you who actually do collect pulps as opposed to just collecting these stories in reprint form, I would say The Famous Fantastic Mysteries is a great title to start with because it happens to be very common. It was avidly collected by the science fiction fans, precisely those, those kids, that generation that grew up during the Depression uh, after most of these stories had originally appeared in print. And beginning in 1939, they were now able to get uh, copies of these stories that their older friends and fellow fans had talked about, saying, oh, yeah, the blind spot, oh, we love that. So uh, Famous Fantastic Mysteries reprinted a lot of these things. Because the magazine was avidly collected, because the science fiction fans tended to be more careful than most pulp readers in terms of storing their collections and maintaining their magazines, the issues of Famous Fantastic Mysteries are both common and pretty easily found in nice shape. And precisely because they're common, uh, common supply outstrips demand, so they're very inexpensive. Uh, inexpec I'm sorry, I've been on the road for 10 hours. Uh, they're very inexpensive to collect. So I would advise you as you're canvassing the dealer's room this weekend um, to take a look at some of the famous Fantastic Mysteries issues. You're going to see a lot of stuff there. Most importantly, it is impossible to find all those early issues of All Story Weekly and, you know, 19, 15 issues of The Argosy or Cavalier or the other Muncie Pulps that printed these stories. Uh, your only chance, if you want to get them in a pulp magazine format with the great illustrations, is to, is to go with Famous Fantastic Mysteries. Now, I will point out that eventually the magazine was taken over by popular publications, Harry Steger's company, which purchased the entire Muncie line in uh, late 1942, I think. They kept Famous Fantastic Mysteries going, but they changed the orientation somewhat. Instead of relying so much on the Muncie backlog, they started reprinting uh, fantasy and science fiction stories from books, uh, from English authors. You saw people like William Hope Hodgson creep into the magazine. Uh, and it became a, a slightly different but no less meritorious magazine. But we'll, we'll go back to the Muncie years. And with that, I'll hand it off to Nathan for his uh, comments on the title. Okay. Yeah. I, um as far as it being a repository for early Muncie stories, uh, it was important to me in that regard because, uh, believe, believe it or not, I was born a year or two after 1939. <laughs> and uh, it was actually when I first got into collecting and reading pulp magazines, Famous Fantastic Mysteries was one of the first ones I went to because it was a repository of uh, all the stuff from the teens and the 20s. It was the first time I was reading Merritt and uh, Ray Cummings and everything. Um, so I don't think that was the expectation they had 70-odd years down the road that somebody would still be using that to go back and find those early speculative fiction stories. But uh, it was important to me in that regard, and that's, um, and that was, like I said, that was one of the first ones I collected in earnest, uh, a lot of the, when I first started reading them. Uh, going back to Muncie and, and his work uh, regarding science fiction, uh, I've been 
like Ed said, I've been researching Muncie's life a whole lot. A uh, number of his, uh, I've been able to get a number of his uh, personal papers, been able to take a small, a couple of small trips up to New York. The uh, William T. Dewart papers, actually, he donated all of his papers to the New York uh, Historical Society, and that had a whole lot of Muncie information, more than, more than I thought when I first went up there. And uh, if anybody's familiar with Muncie, and I'm assuming a lot of you are, uh, he was always kind of demonized as this sort of Ebenezer Scrooge monster sort of character that didn't have a heart and, you know, he was worse than the Grinch. And I was always trying to find something in his correspondences or his personal papers to humanize him a little bit more, saying, oh, I really like this scientific romance or this speculative fiction, like on a personal level. Uh, but from everything I found, he was he was buying them as much as he did because they were they were selling people were buying them and that's what Muncie that's what his bottom line was all about. So I would like to say that Muncie was an early science fiction fan and that's why his titles and then later famous Fantastic Mysteries had such a good backlog of stories. But uh, no, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> now coming to these stories as you did so many years after they were not only published but years after they were reprinted in Famous Fantastic <laughs> Mysteries, what impressed you most about the kind of fiction from those early Muncie magazines that appears in the in those pages? Uh, I'd have to say it was it wasn't from my generation growing up, science fiction was Star Wars and Star Trek, and that's about it. And even, and I know that's a that's a scary topic that a lot of people. That's not science fiction. That's not science. I don't. I'm not. I don't want to get into that. Um, but it was it was such a difference, and uh, you you call them scientific romances. But there was that romance aspect that you just don't have in the science fiction that was popular, and that kind of defined it for people of my generation. Um, Obviously, uh, a lot of the earlier stories, I mean, Edgar Rice Burroughs stuff is a good example of the love story being a, a primary factor in a lot of them. But um, I'd, say, I'd say the narrative structure like that, and also a lot of what I came across was a lot of these authors describing things that we have words for now, but they didn't have back then, and they were kind of coming up, at, come up, coming up with these terms as they go along. I remember reading... Um, I honestly can't remember which story it was. It was a number of years ago, but they kept mentioning a um, uh, a shield, a shield, a shield, and I couldn't just the the way the context of the story. I couldn't figure out what exactly. It wasn't a armament. It, I couldn't tell what it was. But eventually, I, I figured out they're talking about a kind of um, deflector beam that kind of the Enterprise has that gets stuff out of the way of space. And they could have said deflector beam if they had been written. 50 years later, but they weren't. So, and that, that's one of the things I found interesting was trying to figure out what a lot of this terminology was because the terminology just didn't exist at the time. One thing I'd like to point out is that um, to demonstrate, you know, science fiction fandom coalesced very early around amazing stories. And the popular lore is that, that uh, fans, what, what was later called first fandom, was an outgrowth of the letter columns in Amazing Stories where uh, the editors printed the full addresses of the correspondence so that fans of these stories would write to each other if they saw somebody living in the neighboring town or something like that they would write to each other and say hey I like this magazine too and you know I'm glad there's somebody else out there who's nuts who's uh, who's interested in this stuff let's get together sometime and of course they started fan clubs they started printing their own fanzines all of this was, a, was an outgrowth of uh, the Gernsback letter columns. 
by 1939, after fandom had been active for about 10 years, I think the first real science fiction fanzine was printed around 1930. I think it was The Time Traveler may have been the first one. But anyway, after more or less a decade of this kind of activity, what I always found amazing is that there was some kind of, uh, I don't know, it was almost like telepathy where fans knew about certain stories and they were constantly requesting certain stories. And it is quite amazing when you read some of the letter columns when they say, you know, I want you to reprint such and such and I'm only 18, but I, I've heard that, uh, you know, Through the Dragon Glasses is a story that I absolutely have to read. Is there any chance you're going to reprint it soon? The idea that so many of these, uh, what are considered really classic in, in the context of Pulp Fiction, so many of these classic stories were reprinted, and reprinted in a fairly early period. I mean, if you'll, uh, the magazine's first issue, I think, is October and November of 1939, and already by early 1943, when popular publications took it over, they were already starting to inject and reprint these other stories. The fact that they got so much of the great Muncie fiction in, in basically a three-year period tells you that Mary Nadinger knew she was either being told what fans wanted to see back in print or she was such a good editor that she had an innate sense based on the success of one story to, to think, well, all right, if this one worked well, I know that one, which is similar. We'll put that in a future issue and it's bound to get the same kind of reception. So the magazine should never, ever be underestimated. I mean, it's really terrific. I should also point out that not all of the stories uh, that were reprinted from the Muncie Pulps were of that early vintage of the teens. I mean, uh, there's a terrific 1942 issue of Famous Fantastic that reprints uh, Abe Merritt's, um, I just went blank, The Devil Doll. The original title. The, uh, yeah, the, uh, <sighs> Burn Witch Burn, Burn Witch Burn, uh, which, was, which had been serialized in 19... 1932 in Argosy, um, but that had created kind of a stir. It had been published in paperback after that, and it had been made into a motion picture by MGM in 1936 called The Devil Doll, and um, that was one of the stories that apparently got a lot of requests. So Mary Nadinger was very, very savvy, and, and again, the fact that, that when Popular did take over, Harry Steger was smart enough to retain her as editor, and she had this mandate to, to broaden the scope of the stories in the magazine. So the variety is really quite amazing, and, it's, and it's, uh, you don't find what you would call hard science fiction the way that you would find the really technologically driven stories of the type that you might find in, in uh, astounding science fiction. You know, you, you have a lot of wild stuff. I mean, the one story, which again is a very old story and very famous, is a story by the... Um, uh, the comedian Irvin S. Cobb called Fishhead, which if, I don't know if you've read the story, but in the short form without describing the whole thing, I'll say it could have come right out of an EC comic book of the 50s. It was that kind of story with a very gripping, very startling and disturbing surprise ending. So little stories like this, short stories, would be studded throughout the magazines, you know, buttressing these, these more conventional but... Uh, um, uh, you know, still very popular scientific romances. Uh, and eventually, later in the magazine's run, they even ran some of Sachs Romer's 
uh, uh, Egypt-based stories. They ran a couple of Talbot Mundy stories. Uh, so they really cast a pretty wide net. As a matter of fact, the last issue even reprints a story by Ayn Rand. Uh, so, and, and by the way, Ayn Rand with a backup story by Franz Kafka. So that's, that's a kind of bizarre issue. But it just goes to show you how much of what we would call, uh, Nathan put it so well, speculative fiction. Because it's really hard to cross, you know, sometimes the lines between fantasy, science fiction, speculative, you know, it all blurs horror, it all blurs together sometimes. But Mary Nadinger, I think, was particularly expert in, in finding stories that would appeal to her readers. And the letters columns demonstrate that uh, uh, she was hitting the target more often than not. And uh, I'm one of those guys who loves reading letter columns in pulp magazines. And with Famous Fantastic Mysteries, it's like a who's who of science fiction fandom, not only guys who were very active in fandom, but also those who went on to become professionals themselves. So um, I'm going to throw it back to you. Yeah, I was going to um, say something about you're kind of saying a hodgepodge of different things going together. Um, I do remember that I believe it was only three instances under, uh, under the Muncie publication line before it went to popular. Uh, that there were non-Muncie stories published, and one of those was H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. I don't, I can't remember the exact story. Um, but then later on, you had some folks that I wouldn't, at at first glance, think of being science fiction. Um, J.K. Chesterton, uh, he had a story published in there, or, or one of his stories was published in there uh, after it went to popular. And and then going to near the end of the run. Uh, you had Arthur C. Clarke's, uh, one of the s first uh, installments of what would later become Childhood's End, appearing near the end of the run. So it was a really good hodgepodge. I mean, even through the months from when it was under Muncie, through Popular, and to the end. Um, whenever I think of the title, the image that always comes to my mind is like one of the first issues I picked up of it, of a cover story of Robert E. Howard's Skullface. Right. And it's a really it's a really great cover, and it only like I said. Whenever I hear the title, that's the first image that pops into my mind, and uh, and that's not something you would think of as hard science fiction in, in any way whatsoever. No, um, so yeah, it was absolutely a good hodgepodge, and that's what I think helped helped me uh, when I was first getting into the pulp magazines because I could pick up an issue and it would have several different things that would kind of go off in, in different tangents, and I'm sure that was the case for the reader, the original readers uh, at the time, really. Yeah, you know, as a, as a collector, uh, there, there are 81 issues in the set of Famous Fantastic Mysteries from 1939 to, I think, 1953 is the last one. So, like I said, they're very common. They're e I, you, could, you could almost put together a complete set just in, an, in any pulp convention dealer's room. That's how common they are, and that's how many of them are around. You could, you could probably get, pick up half the, half the file, you know, in one day. Um, but... Uh, I just forgot the point I was going to make. But in, 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 again, in terms of, of the, the variety of the thing, it's a, it's a difficult process when you're an editor. You know, you're working with a, with a certain budget. You know, you have X number of dollars that you can spend on a magazine or on a page. Sometimes they break it down to, to a page. You can buy reprint rights. It's not an easy task. Some authors want more money for their stories than others. You don't always get your first choice. Uh, for all we know, Mary Nadinger may have decided that such and such a short story was the perfect story 
to accompany the novel that she was printing in that issue, but she just couldn't get it because the author didn't want it reprinted. He wanted too much money for it. But her second choice was always really good. It may not have been the best, but it was something that was really good. And that's one of the marks of the great, of the great editors, the great pulp editors. When they had stories that were great, they knew that certain stories would sell the magazine. If it was Black Mask magazine, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, Capshaw knew that, that Race Williams would sell, Carol John Daly's Race Williams would sell every time he was on the cover. But he also knew to back up Race Williams with stories by Frederick Nebel or Ramon DeColta or when they were around Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler. This kind of editorial savvy is very easy to take for granted. Uh, and the fact that Mary Nadinger did it so well and for so long, nearly 15 years, is really a, a testimony to her ability to work with, the, with this material. And uh, again, I can't, I can't overestimate what a fun magazine it is to collect. It's a fun magazine to read. And I would, I would uh, dismiss, with all due respect, I would dismiss the purists that say, this is no good because the story was cut by a third. Uh, like I said, in a lot of cases, the stories deserve to be cut. In some cases, I think they're actually improved by cutting. And uh, uh, it, it makes them more enjoyable. And if you're introducing a new generation of readers, if, if you were not around to experience these things, and you pick them up in Famous Fantastic Mysteries, anything that gets you involved and gets you to read something like Polaris of the Snows, or uh, Creep Shadow, or Burn Witch Burn, or any of the others, it's, it's worth having. And the terrific cover art and the terrific interior art, Lawrence Stern Stevens also later on in the 40s came in with a lot of Finlay-like, again, very intricate black and white pen drawings. This is all great stuff. And, and you read these magazines, they're, they're tremendous fun. So, so those of you who are still collecting the pulp magazines as opposed to the reprints, I would urge you, don't take for granted, just because you see these magazines, they're so common, you see them in practically every box on a dealer's table. Don't overlook them, don't go past them. Some of them are, are pretty darn good, and some of them print some very stories that are still very obscure. You know, even though these magazines were published just as the paperback revolution was getting underway, there's still a lot of stuff in, uh, hidden in the pages of famous fantastic mysteries that has never been reprinted anywhere else. So for a magazine that you can often pick up copies for 5, 10, 15 bucks, uh, it's really uh, well worth getting. And uh, I was just going to, and this may be more of a question to you than me actually putting something out there, but uh, isn't it, would you say that uh, Miss Nadinger, it was somewhat rare for someone to stay on a single title for as long as she did for the entirety of its run? I mean, that's just judging from the little bit of histories I've, I've uh, read of some of these magazines, it was... Not a revolving door. Well, in some cases, it was a revolving door. But in some cases, it was steps and steps to several different guys. But, I mean, she was one of the few that stayed through the entirety of the run. Would you? Yeah, and, I, and, and again, I think it speaks to her skill, and, and, and it, it speaks to her uh, ability to keep her publisher happy. You know, there's a saying among professional writers that writers don't read for their for the re that writers don't write for the readers, they write for the editors, because it's the editors who are buying their stories. So it's not a writer's job, a fiction writer's job, to determine the public taste. It's the editor who's packaging those magazines and marketing them to the public. He's the guy who determines 
based on what he knows about sales figures and whatnot. He's the guy who decides what's selling. So the fact that Mary kept people happy for so long, and again, you only have to look at the, the letters columns. Now, every once in a while, somebody would say, you know, I really hated so-and-so's cover for that story, and it was all wrong because the girl had blonde hair in the story and black hair on the cover. You know, every once in a while, you'd see a letter like that. But, but for the most part, she really hit the bullseye, and um, it speaks volumes. And, and basically, a publisher, especially in, in the pulp days, if the sales were up or if they were at least holding their own, and sometimes it was a very tough thing to do, the publisher was inclined to leave the editor alone. And that's true in magazines today. I mean, I, I've, I've been a magazine editor. I was left alone as long as my magazine was doing well. If my magazine was slipping for some reason, then somebody, you know, the publisher would say, well, now what's going on here? What's happening here? Uh, the only thing that really hurt Famous Fantastic Mysteries is something that Mary Nadinger had no control over, which is the fact that during the war years, paper rationing forced them to cut back the schedule. So whereas it was started originally as a monthly and then became a bi-monthly during the war years, it was printed quarterly. And I think there's one year where the paper shortage was particularly acute, where there's only three issues that were actually published during the year. So it's difficult under circumstances like that to maintain a certain flow of product and to do the kind of promotion you want. I mean, it's hard to promote a magazine that's not going to be on the newsstand next month for whatever reason. So I suspect she enjoyed the break, but uh, it was still on. Of course, we've left out the fact that Famous Fantastic Mysteries was popular enough that Muncie spun off a second reprint title called Fantastic Novels, which uh, only published novel-length stories for a while and, again, relied very heavily on A. Merritt and some of the other early Muncie writers. Now, they got five issues of Fantastic Novels out. The wartime paper rationing killed that title altogether, it was revived in 1948, and again, like its predecessor, it was edited by Mary Nadinger. And they were, in that case, going back to the well a little too often, because those post-war issues of fantastic novels uh, often print stories that had been printed in famous fantastic mysteries in the early 40s. So you can get some of these stories. I mean, I think, I think Ship of Ishtar was probably published three times in the two magazines over, over a period of time. So. Uh, <clears throat> there was a certain amount of bouncing around from magazine to magazine, but overall, the, I would say the level of quality is very consistent. And, and as Nathan alluded to before, you often had, you often had short stories. Uh, you had new short stories. I mean, Ray Bradbury sold a story. I forget the title of it now, but it appears in one of the 1943 issues. That's very early in his career. That's long before he became established, say, at Planet Stories, where he started doing the Martian Chronicles series and some other stories. This was a very early sale for him. And again, Nadinger knew the fans. She was probably aware of the fact that Bradbury was writing prolifically for fanzines, and he had sold a story already uh, that he co-wrote with Henry Hasse. So, you know, she probably said, yeah, this, this kid is an up-and-comer, and, -comer and he, I won't have to pay him as much as I would have to pay an established writer, so maybe I can get this story cheap from him. Well, it, again, it, it shows that she detected the quality in people, and she, and she always knew how to get a little extra bang for the buck. I was going to say about uh, fantastic novels, one thing I, I thought was interesting, like I said, I'm, half the stuff I'm, I'm thinking and talking about goes back to Muncie just because I've read up on him so much, is that uh, 
if I remember correctly, Fantastic Novels. It was a separate title, and then for a, a year or two, it was merged into uh, Famous Fantastic yeah. Mysteries, and then it was separated back out. And I, I thought that was kind of uh, funny in a way because Muncy early in his, uh, when he was first getting started with the pulp magazines, that's what he would do. He would destroy a title. He would he would merge the Cavalier with the All Story, and he'd take out the Ocean and put in the Live Wire, and it would just you wouldn't know whatever magazine you were getting from from month to month. And I thought it was interesting some almost 20 years after his death, his uh, subordinates were still kind of, I mean, I know other publishers did similar things, but it was kind of interesting to see a Muncie title still going through that part of this magazine, taken out, canceled, brought back together. Like, I don't know, that, that was an interesting Muncie connection there. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, getting off topic just briefly, I did a, um, in the new Blood and Thunder, um, the new issue of Blood and Thunder, I have an article on All-American Fiction, which was another Muncie pulp that didn't quite make it. It only lasted eight issues. Well, what they did was to strengthen uh, the circulation of Argosy, they started a serial, which turned out to be, by the way, the first Captain Horatio Hornblower novel, Beat to Quarters, which had another title overseas. They started the serial in the last issue of All-American Fiction and then said, oh, by the way, if you want to read the rest of the story, you're going to have to go to Argosy because we're continuing it there. Now, if you were a fan of all-American fiction and you bought this magazine and you read the first installment of this and said, oh, wait a minute, now i got to go buy another magazine, which they may or may not have been reading. You know, so that was a very popular approach to theirs. In the case of famous fantastic novels and, and famous fantastic mysteries merging, it would seem to me that the fan base of both books was so similar that there wasn't much to gain from making a point of merging one with yeah, the other. I mean, reading the history, it seemed to me um, that it was more so out of they had a whole, they had a giant backlog of stuff they wanted to print, and you had readers write it in saying, I want this one novel-length story, but I also want this short story, and it seemed like it was just a, a way of making everybody happy, to me at least. I mean, that's what I gather from it, because the, the audiences overlap, absolutely, because like you said, you're, they're printing the same guy sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think at this point we will throw it open to questions or observations from any of you in the audience. Any of you have questions about Famous Fantastic Mysteries? Yes, sir. Um, you are very right about the artwork. Like, I only actually collect the magazines, but I've always been collecting all these different covers I found online. And uh, the, uh, oh, they're just magnificent. Years, like if you find these books of uh, artwork by Virgil Finley, they'll, they'll be stealing from them literally, reprinting stuff from them. Uh, but one thing aroused my interest the other day on the Yahoo group site, Pulp Mags, which discusses pulp issues, somebody brought up mugshots of authors. And immediately, somebody thought of how Hugo Gerns back in Amazing Stories and uh, Science Wonder Wonder Stories used to do these simple line drawings of authors. But a while back, I found these uh, line drawings of H.G. Wells and Olaf Stapledon. And what they would do was they would put, they would do the line drawings of the faces, but then they would do all these interesting things all around the faces of, you know, things from different stories of theirs or uh, wells out, you know, superimposed above the earth. And it seems to me, I saw that once poking around the bomb of curious books once, 
in some famous fantastic mysteries. Am I right or wrong that that's where they were doing those? And it, do you remember anything? They, like they mer very well might have. I don't remember them offhand, but uh, I wouldn't be a bit surprised. I, I just wanted to say if there's anybody in the audience who, who you know, reprints things in his, his magazines, fan magazines, art books, whatever, that it would be fascinating to go through all those magazines, uh, FFM and possibly Fantastic Novels and Fantastic Adventures, and collect all of those and put them together. People put together uh, galleries of photographs of authors before, but th these are just so cool, and it's just a pity that that nobody remembers them anymore because they're very beautiful to look at. All right, well, thanks for the suggestion. There's something for an uh, ambitious publisher out there to consider. <laughs> Do we have some other questions or observations? Yes, sir. Nathan, what's the story with the Muncie book you're writing? Or is that a rumor? Oh, no, no. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, a little bit more than a rumor, but nothing uh, concrete now. I'm finishing up another project. But uh, like I said, I have been um, going up to New York to the Historical Society, looking at his papers. I've been... Uh, Last couple of years, I've been fortunate enough to find uh, a number of collections of personal papers on, online that I've acquired and are kind of hoarding in my desk and uh, going through when I have the time. And uh, I'm still collecting every so often whenever I find anything on eBay. Like uh, just recently, I found the uh, issue of the American Legion magazine from 1922 of Lasting Muncie because he was against... Uh, when the veterans uh, marched for their bonuses to get them then as opposed to waiting the time they were supposed to. And of course they were making them sound like an ogre and a monster and everything, which I expected. I mean, you know, coming, who it was coming from and everything, it's understandable. Um, but yeah, I'm still, I'm still finding everything I can to Muncie and uh, I'm hoping to start that as soon as I finish what I'm currently working on now. So a little bit more than a rumor, but nothing concrete, sorry. <laughs> Thank you. You heard it here first. <laughs> We got time for one or two more questions or comments. Yes, sir. So this uh, FFM title is being reprinted earlier uh, scientific romance related. Is that the only one that really kicks off this 1939 boom that we're alluding to for the uh, anniversary here? Are there some more? It's, it's the only all reprint pulp. If that's what you mean, yeah. I mean, there were a number. There were a number of major so titles first published in 1939. Oh, then there were more new ones. oh yeah, the uh, the other 1939 titles featured or original content. Yes, sir. I would have to say, if anybody's really interested in the golden age of science fiction, the best book to read is Albert Rogers' Requiem for Astounding. He just doesn't talk about astounding in it, and you know, focus on its golden age. That all these other magazines, like famous fantastic mysteries and amazing others, to, to a little extent, and uh, it's a wonderful book based in collecting on. I've been doing that for the last 44 years. Yeah, I'm sure we'll mention Alva Rogers' book uh, uh, tomorrow night in the Astounding, or, or either maybe it's Saturday night, the Astounding, the panel we're doing on astounding science fiction. One more. Yes. How common was it to have a female editor at a major? magazine, the Paul Bear. Well, there, there were a, a number of them. I mean, obviously, the men um, uh, outstripped them 
you know, in numbers, I, I couldn't give you an exact percentage, but I dare say it was 90 plus percent of the editors were men. But there were a lot of females. I mean, it was generally thought that only a woman could handle the love story pulps. But there were other exceptions, too. I mean, for many, many years, Dorothy McElwraith was an assistant to Doubleday's Harry Maul, and she helped him edit the magazine Short Stories, which was one of the best of the general fiction pulps. And of course, Doubleday was a major publisher, publishing hardcovers as well as pulps. When Harry Maul was kind of kicked upstairs to the hardcovers, she took over Short Stories. And later, when Short Stories was sold to a, another publisher, she went along for the ride. For that publisher, they later acquired Weird Tales. And she replaced Farnsworth Wright as the editor of Weird Tales. And she edited both Short Stories and Weird Tales well into the 50s. So there's another example of a woman who started as an assistant editor, becoming a, an editor, and a damn good editor, too. Another one I would point to is Fanny Ellsworth, who took over the legendary Black Mask after Joseph Shaw, Cap Shaw, left in 1936. He was more or less kicked out the door. And she came over and she brought into the magazine some very popular authors that should have been in the magazine, but that Cap Shaw, for one reason or another, didn't like. These included some of the real big names in crime and mystery pulp fiction. Cornell Woolrich, Frank Gruber, Steve Fisher, uh, Baynard Kendrick. Uh, Shaw, for one reason or another, never, never saw the merit in their submissions, but Fanny Ellsworth did, and uh, her contribution lasted only three years. Popular Publications bought Black Mask in 1940, and at that point, uh, they had Kenneth White editing it. But that, that little period of, from 1937 to 1940, has some remarkable stories, and, and one, of the, one of the ways you know that she picked a lot of great stories is many of, many of her stories have been anthologized uh, numerous times, like Frank Ruber's The Sad Serbian, which is something that, according to him, everybody had turned down, but Fanny Ellsworth, that wound up being anthologized in about six different books. So there were some very important female editors, and while it was not, I would say, common, they certainly did play a, a role in, in Pulp Fiction. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, when your next adventure was just a dime away. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps.